This morning, if uh, you have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, then uh, go ahead and grab one in the, the backs of the seats and you could go ahead and follow along with us. We're in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. And this morning, um, as we get into this uh, passage, ironically, many churches don't talk about suffering and death. You know, it's not a, a popular topic. It's almost like you want everyone, uh, you know, in our culture to feel okay. In fact, when you talk to someone and you ask them, how are you? Usually it's expected that we say what? Fine. Okay, because people don't have time for you if you say you're not fine. You know, you're at a store or something. Hey, how's it going? Well, you know, I, I'm just having a tough time right now. I mean, what do they do? They're just like, you know, they just kind of back up. So we, I think that many churches don't talk about suffering and, and don't talk about death. But I think it's important that as Christians, that as a community, that, that we should learn to be able to suffer well together, to be able to bear one another's burdens, to come alongside of other people so that we're not going through things on our own. In fact, when I think about some of the things that might help a community of believers to help each other deal with suffering and death, one of the main things is being able to pray together. Um, I'm always blessed after a church service to see that there are pockets of people that are praying, just spontaneously praying for one another. It's one of the the best um, things to see as a pastor, that people pray for one another. I think that it's important to be together, to build real friendship. But in order to build real friendship, there has to be a transparency. There has to be a realness. And and I think that sometimes, again, we don't want to share what we're going through. So we kind of keep things to ourselves, And we're we're almost afraid if someone knows what I'm doubting or what I'm suffering through or what I'm going through, then maybe they're going to think something of me. I remember getting a little bit gun shy about being transparent when I was pastoring um, the church in Gilroy. And one Sunday in the text that I was teaching, and I don't even remember what text it was, and it was just about like bearing one another's burdens, and I was just sharing some of the things that I was going through. Um, there was a, a couple that stopped going to the church, and I didn't see them for a while, and, and I saw him out at, at the store, and I was like, hey, you know, kind of what's going on? And, and he just kind of hemmed and hawed about what was going on, but he did, really didn't say. And then I talked to another friend later on, and they said, oh yeah, they left because you started sharing the struggles that you were going through. And he was thinking, and this is what he had said, if, if the pastor is going through that, why should I listen to him? <laughs> so if he's struggling, like, like why should I listen to, to that guy? And I just think it is really important that as we seek to be real with one another, that we share, I, I think one of the things that helps a, a community of believer, believers to be able to deal with suffering and death is to share the gospel together. Um, the team that went to Peru, what they did is they were out sharing the gospel with other people. They were out telling people about Jesus and about the good news of Jesus. And if you've ever been a part of a group that's done that, you know that you get closer to one another. But let me tell you another thing is to share the, the good news of the gospel with each other, even though we already know. Because I need to be reminded, you need to be reminded by other people that Jesus is real and that he comforts us in the middle of what we're going through. And this morning, that's the message that Jesus gave to the church of Smyrna in the book of Revelation. This letter brought hope and encouragement. It brought brought faith. And remember that the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus himself. He wants to reveal himself to us this morning. So when you look at the seven churches, 
you consider um, what these churches were like, remember that uh, they were in a circuit, um, these seven churches, and as the letters would go out, there were pastors or angels, angelos is the word, that were the messengers of these seven churches. And Jesus wants to encourage the, the messengers of these churches. Every time Jesus encourages them, um, there's a specific aspect of himself that he reveals to them. Um, there are times when you, you think about being a, a coach. Um, I used to coach track and field and I used to coach football in, in high school. And I realized that there were times that my team needed um, angry coach. Okay, they needed, they needed uh, the coach that, that slams the clipboard down to kind of like jar them. Okay, there were other times that my team needed comforting coach because they had given everything they had and they still lost. They needed the coach that would come alongside of them, put his arm around them and say, it's okay. And every time Jesus reveals himself to each of these churches in Revelation chapters two and three, he reveals a side of himself, a part of himself that that church needs to hear. So we're going to see that when Jesus reveals himself to the church of Smyrna, he reveals uh, the part of himself that they need at that moment. He's the same Jesus, he's the same God in all of those, but yet to the church in Smyrna, his attitude is different, his um, revelation of himself to them is different than his revelation of himself to some of the other churches because of what it was that they needed. And remember this, that when we look at these churches, that every one of these churches were literal churches at the time in an area known as Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. Um, remember the Isle of Patmos is just a very, very small island off of the shore there. Um, when Domitian, uh, Domitian became the emperor, um, he instituted a statewide, uh, really through all the Roman Empire, now persecution now Caesar worship or emperor worship was now going to be formalized and everyone had to participate in it because if you did not participate in it, it was showing that you were not loyal to Rome. Now that is not far-fetched. We, we look at that in ancient history, but believe me, around this world, we realize from the news, aren't people being killed today because of their faith in Christ? Aren't people today being beheaded Aren't people today being martyred because they say, well, I, I'm a follower of Jesus? Well, this is what happened. And John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And when he was there, Jesus himself appeared to John and gave him this revelation. And it was this revelation that John was now to give to each of these churches so that they could read these letters and what Jesus was saying to them. Now, when we consider this, um, let's go ahead and read in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, what Jesus says here to the church of Smyrna. It says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now this next picture is a modern day picture of something called the, the Agora. Uh, an Agora, it was a, 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 like a Greek mall, okay? The, uh, the Agora here in Smyrna was actually a three-story, um, like a, a mega mall, okay? This is like, you know, this is like a, a big mall, a, a shopping center, a marketplace. So the city of Smyrna, it rivaled the city of Ephesus as far as being a, a main center of commerce, Something to know about the city of uh, Smyrna, the population at the time was about 200,000 people, which was a very large city for that time. And it was known as the crown of Asia, the crown of Asia, which is Asia Minor. Now, the chief point of boasting was their fierce loyalty towards Rome. Now, I know I'm giving you history, um, but, but bear with me because... I, I like it, all right? <laughs> and I think that there's some things that I, I glean from it, so I'm hoping that you glean from it. Um, I have a friend uh, named Lance Ralston who pastors Calvary Chapel of Oxnard, and it, it's really cool. His podcast, if you go into podcasts on iTunes, his podcast under Christian Podcasts is one of the top-ranked podcasts, and it's called Church History. And, and he just drops this knowledge of church history, and, it, and in a real fascinating way, and, and when I was listening to the segment about the church of Smyrna and about the pastor here, it, it was just like, like explosion in my mind. Like it just, it blew me away. So hopefully you get blown away with some of this. You see, at this time, um, the Smyrnians wanted to become a part of Rome, even before Rome was like an official worldwide, worldwide empire. So they started following the customs and the ways of Rome and they built a temple to the goddess of Roma. And they said, hey, we're one of you guys. It would be like, imagine if a, another country, a small country, wanted to be a part of the United States and said, hey, we want to be like you guys. So, so look, we just built, um, I don't know, a, a mall or a church or, you know, something to show like we're, we're one of you guys. Well, this is kind of what happens over in Smyrna. They also built, they were the first area outside of Rome itself to build a temple to Tiberius, to um, Caesar worship, emperor worship. So what they were doing is saying, hey, we want to be the recipients of Rome's protection. We want to be the recipients of Rome's tax benefits. We want to be the recipients of of Rome's um, blessings, if you would. So we're going to do as the Romans do. And because we're doing that, Rome gave them this special privilege amongst other cities because They just said, hey, we are fully Roman. Now, this was a problem for the Christians because when the city of Smyrna said, this is what we're going to do, they also instituted this Caesar worship. And of course, for Christians who believe that Jesus is Lord, he's the King of Kings, and we bow down to no one and worship no one else, now all of a sudden, their worship became a point of contention. Their worship became a way of the rest of the city ostracizing them, saying, hey, you don't want us to lose our status, do you? You don't want us to lose our tax privileges. You don't want us to lose our our citizenship. So you need to get with the program. Now, the Christians, the early Christians, many times were converts from from Judaism, from 
you know, the Hebrew faith and, and the Hebrew God. So they would meet in synagogues. But as they were meeting in synagogues, the more that the synagogue would say, hey, we want these special privileges and these Christians couldn't really fit in with them, they were actually kicked out of the synagogue in Smyrna. And they were kind of left on their own. And that's how a lot of church plants started. It didn't start by looking at a strategic location and like, hey, this would be a great corner if we just got this property. And you know, it's kind of like, we did a study on the demographics. It'd be no, they got kicked out of the synagogue. They had no place to go and they looked for a place to meet. So this is what happened to the church in Smyrna. Now, when we get to the revelation, Jesus's revelation to this church, he wants to give a specific word to them because they were suffering. And I want you to notice with me, it says in verse eight, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. Now, remember the word angel is the Greek word angelos, and that word meant messenger. Sometimes it's translated as angel, other times it's translated as messenger. And there are times in scripture that a messenger is just translated as messenger, other times as angel. But when we consider the messenger of the church, the messenger of the church was the bishop or the pastor or the leader of each one of the churches who would be faithful to deliver the message to that church. Now, remember that it is absolutely important the leader is responsible to give the message that Jesus wants to give to the church. As I pray, as I go through scripture, as I ask the Lord to show me, Lord, what do you want me to teach? I don't have the privilege of just saying, you know, um, I see that this is what scripture teaches, but I feel like teaching something else. Or when the Holy Spirit gives a specific message, and I believe that it's for the church, um, I'm called upon as a steward, to teach those things, whether or not it's comfortable. Because when we only teach the things that are comfortable and the things that are easy, then we miss the full counsel of God's word. One of the things that Paul was able to share is he said, I have not shrunk from declaring to you the full counsel of God. But remember this, the pastor is not immune from the message. I'm not just telling you what God is saying to you. The message is for me also. So before we get into this text, I I need to give one more bit of history here. Remember that the church of Smyrna um, is a church plant that is um, a, a church that has a pastor that at the time of the writing, his name is a guy named Polycarp. Okay, we're gonna come back to this. Church history, his name was Polycarp. You remember from last week that Ephesus was a church that was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. We read about that in the book of Acts. After Paul pastored the church, he handed the church off to whom? Do you remember? To Timothy. Okay, then Timothy pastored the church. And after Timothy pastored the church, John himself, the one that is the recipient of the revelation, he became the pastor of that church. Now, at the time, churches were popping up all over the place. And as churches were popping up, what John would do is he would send different people to different places to pastor the church. Under the persecution of Domitian, John, who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, by the time that he receives this revelation, there were hundreds, if not thousands of churches that were planted. And one of those was the church of Smyrna, about 35 
uh, 35 miles north of Ephesus. So the recipient of this letter was a young man named Polycarp. After John um, comes back from the Isle of Patmos, he sends this letter around. And Polycarp is one of the pastors, one of the messengers that receives this letter, this revelation of Jesus. Now, it was Saturday morning, February 23rd, 155 AD, according to historians, that the regional games, the Roman games, they would have the Olympic games, but then they would have these regional games. And it would begin as a renewal of the city's allegiance to Rome. And the Smyrnians again took great pride in this and they said they wanted it to be a great Roman festival and, and they wanted to do everything as part of the, the games. Now, a part of that was that they needed to show their devotion to Caesar by worshiping Caesar. Now, the crowds as they gathered together at a theater began to um, be angry because Polycarp was the leader of the church and the Christians would not bow down to worship. So then they began to say, we need to find this man and we need to take him out and we need to make an example of him. There was a slave at the time that was a Christian and they, they said, okay, he's a Christian. He was tortured. And after he was tortured, he gave them the, uh, the place where Polycarp was staying. So when the soldiers and the police, the magistrates of the city, they came after Polycarp, Polycarp's friend said that they're coming and they tried to warn him. And Polycarp said, let them come. He just, he just stayed there. Persecution's coming, he said, let them come. And when they came, they were kind of blown away because they found that Polycarp was waiting for them. And as Polycarp um, welcomed them in, they told him that if he would just simply say that Caesar is Lord, then he would be released. Now, Polycarp, who is a young man that planted this church, by the time he receives the revelation, he's a younger man. But now this is decades later, and he's an old man. And as an old man, they don't want to put him to death. They're saying, please, just, just do this. I mean, hey, you could still do what you're doing, but just say Caesar is Lord. And he says, I won't do it. And the captain wanted to instruct him to do so. And Polycarp basically said, my, my time has come. And they wanted him to recant. And Polycarp answered, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So the proconsul said, recant or I will call in the beast. Because at the time, many of the Christians were fed to wild beasts, sometimes to lions, sometimes to dogs. But Polycarp said, bring them. So he said, if you're not afraid of the beasts, then we'll burn you. Now, Polycarp heard this and listened to his response. He said, you threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire that awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come, do as you will. This is, this is a pastor of a church that was going through an intense time of suffering. Now, Polycarp was led to the stake. Before they left his house, um, he served them a meal. He asked them if he could pray for them. And all the way going to his death, they're trying to get him to not go through with it. Don't go through with this. You know, just, 
just recant. He's led to the stake. They gathered around him. And the people that were eager to see him die, because again, it would save the city of Smyrna from persecution, they began to watch as the flames began to rise higher and to burn him. But he wouldn't say a word against his accusers. And he wouldn't call out for mercy and he wouldn't call out to be rescued. As the, the flames were, were burning and the flames weren't quite doing the job, one of the men grabbed a spear and they thrust him through. And that's actually how Polycarp died is with a spear. But I wanna share with you something that happened. After everyone saw what Polycarp had gone through, they were so ashamed of themselves and they had no joy in seeing this old man being faithful and even praying. And he died so well, still having faith and trust in the Lord that it sparked a revival in the city of Smyrna. Instead of quenching the fire of God, it actually began to feed the flame of what God was doing. And one of the things that inspired Polycarp to go through this is remember that he had received this letter from John and Jesus had spoken to the leader, to the messenger of the church in Smyrna. That absolutely blows me away. When I think about the persecution that is going on, you know, around the world today, you know, Easter Sunday was a great Sunday. Easter Sunday was wonderful. The worship, the, the time of prayer, you know, just uh, this sense of God's presence. But on the same day when we were worshiping the Lord here in Pakistan, a church was bombed and 70 Christians died on Easter Sunday a couple of weeks ago because of the persecution against the church. To the persecuted church, Jesus, who is the author, remember Polycarp being the recipient of this letter, Jesus, who is the author, says, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Do you know what the church in Smyrna needed to hear? The part of Jesus, the aspect of Jesus that he wanted to reveal to them is this, I am the first and the last. Now that is something that is a title given to, to God in the book of Isaiah several times. And Jesus is saying, I am the first, which means I had no beginning. I've always been here. And he said, I'm the last. I, I, have, I have no end. And then he's saying to them, I was dead. I have been there. And then he says, and I came to life. You find that when it comes to Christians, the only Christians, the only churches that are Christian churches that debate and kind of hem and haw about the revelation of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead are churches that do not live under intense persecution. But around the world, wherever there is intense persecution, the book of Revelation and the resurrection of Christ is what they hold on to because it is their hope. I pray for this morning that that is our hope. That if Jesus really is a real resurrected savior, if he really did rise from the dead, is there anything that he can't face? Is there anything that we're going through that we think, hey, you know what? Jesus can't handle this because the resurrection is our guarantee and it's our comfort. And Jesus comforting the church in Smyrna reminds them, I am the one who is dead and came to life. Now, 
in verse 9, we see his affirmation. Remember that in the letters to the churches, there's the revelation of Jesus. He reveals a certain aspect of himself to that particular church. And then he gives them an affirmation. Now, there are some churches that don't receive affirmation because they're just all messed up. But this church receives some affirmation. And this is how Jesus affirms them. He encourages them. In verse 9, he says, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The first words of comfort that Jesus gives to encourage them is this. I know. You know what he says to the church, to the suffering, to people that are going through mourning, to people that are struggling with death? You know what he says to you in your suffering? You know what he says to you in your struggle? He says, I know. And the first thing that he knows, he says, I know your works. Now, one kind of a trial of faith is not feeling like God knows what you're going through. You ever feel that way? I mean, I do. And you know what? I'm in good company because David felt that way. You ever read the Psalms? And, and David feels like he's forgotten by God. Like, God, you don't know what I'm going through. I'm blessed that we have scripture and real men and women throughout the Bible that struggled with this at times. And in the middle of this struggle, Jesus says, I know. And the first thing he says, I know, is your works. Jesus knows what you do for him. Did you know that Jesus knows what you do for him? He knows when you just help another person out, whether they acknowledge it or not. Jesus knows. He knows if you got here early to set up for hospitality. He knows if you practiced during the week and you prayed over the songs that we would be singing for worship. He he knows the struggles that you've been going through in trying to be a good witness at home and trying to be an example in a very, very difficult circumstance. Jesus knows your works. He knows the things that no one else sees. Moms, Jesus knows what you do. Because you know what? Your kids don't sometimes, right? It's just like they have no idea. You know, sometimes you want them to have an idea. But Jesus knows the things that we do for him. And then he knows our tribulation. The word for tribulation is a word that means crushing pressure. You know the crushing pressure that you feel? That you're just... You, you might look okay on the outside, but you're just trying to get through the day. You are just trying to make it. You're trying to take one foot, one step after the other. You're trying to wake up and just face whatever it is that you're facing. And you're under this crushing pressure, unending affliction. And Jesus knows that. It also says that Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, I know your poverty. Now, in, in the Greek in which our Bible is translated into English from, there are different words for poverty. One of them is a poverty that's like, you know what, I don't have anything extra, uh, I'm poor. Sometimes we say that, you know, hey, you wanna go out to eat? No, I can't, I'm poor. Do you wanna go to a movie? I, I would, but I'm, I'm poor. This word is abject poverty. This word is not, you don't have any luxuries, it, it's you don't have necessities. This is a word that is extreme. And economic persecution, like the Christians are experiencing today in Syria. They have nothing. 
They're, they have to leave with whatever they could carry and just leave their home and walk out. And this is what the church was facing in Smyrna. They abject poverty. It's what happens in North Korea under communism or Iran or Sudan or India or Pakistan at, at, at times. But Jesus looks at their poverty. He says, hey, I know what you're going through. But he wants them to know that he sees things differently than the world sees things. Because Jesus' response is this, but I know, but you are rich. I know your poverty, but you are rich. You know, the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers don't teach about the church of Smyrna. You're not going to hear that. They're not selling books on it. They're not, they're not, you know, yelling and saying, you know, you could have this and you could have that and everything's going to be okay and don't doubt and, and all of these things. Because to the church of Smyrna, Jesus doesn't say your poverty is going to end. All of a sudden, you're going you're gonna to have this influx of wealth. You know what he simply says is he says, I know. Do you remember Jesus says the poor you'll have with you always? And it doesn't mean that we're not to try to relieve poverty. We are to do that. We are to try to relieve suffering and pain. But we will never be able to relieve all of the suffering and the pain. And Jesus wants the church to know this. You are rich. Now, does God provide? Absolutely. Is he a blessing father? We just sang about that, right? You're a good, good father. But there are godly rich and there are godly poor. There are ungodly rich and there are ungodly poor. But in many ways, riches at times could even be a snare because the reliance is upon riches. So be careful if God prospers you. Make sure that you give thanks that you're humble and generous. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, it says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Whether you're rich or poor, God is your provider. Whether you have a job or you don't have a job, don't look at just your job as your provider. God is the one that provides for you, even if it's through that job. It goes on to say there are, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they take hold of that which is truly life. I, I love when I see people that are rich in this life and the next. There was an article that I read one time, and it was called The Profit Prophet. It was about a Fortune 500 CEO that still drives used cars that he has had for a long time, that still buys his suits at Sears, and he funds so much ministry around the world, does so much good. You know, I think that it is important that when it comes to finances, whether rich or poor, that we look at that and say, Jesus, you're the one that is my provider. Not in pride and also not in a sense of shaking my fist at God when he doesn't know or I feel like he doesn't know the poverty that I'm going through. He doesn't know what I'm facing. Jesus says, I know. Now, he also knows that there are people there that call themselves or, or that are, not call themselves, but they they are a synagogue of Satan. That is a bad church name, okay? <laughs> the synagogue of Satan. They didn't call themselves that, but Jesus calls them that. What he calls us is more important than what we call ourselves. 
I could say, hey, I'm a Christian, but Jesus knows where my heart is. I could say, well, you know, uh, whatever I want to say about myself, but what Jesus says about me is more important than what I say about myself. Now, these Judaizers in Smyrna were a specific group who persecuted Christians there. This is not anti-Semitism. This is not against all Jews or all synagogues. But this synagogue specifically in Smyrna, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. Remember, they were kicking the Christians out because as persecution arose, they didn't want to go through the same persecution that many of these Christians went through. So these Christians were betrayed. They were slandered. They were ridiculed. They were tortured. Remember that Jesus, Paul, Peter, they were Jewish. So this is not against Jewish people. But in the book of Romans, we see the spiritual Jew is one who has faith and follows the Christ. One who is a Jew inwardly in the book of Romans is the person that realizes that Jesus is the Christ and I'm a follower of the Messiah, a follower of the Christ. Now, let me ask you, how do you endure slander? People gossip about you. They talk about you. They post something on social media that it's anonymous, but you know it's directed towards you. Like, how do you respond to those kinds of things? The things that you hear secondhand from someone else. Let me ask you a question. How did Jesus endure slander? Because remember, he's relating to the church of Smyrna, and he says, I know. And Jesus was slandered, but he endured the slander. In fact, he still does. You know what the sad thing is? Jesus Christ is a curse word now on television and in in our world. And people say that when they're angry, when everything is going wrong, when a bad thing happens, and they yell Jesus' name in vain, and he's slandered. And yet his patience and his love is even towards those who would slander him. Now, the next thing that we see in these letters is an exhortation of correction. But one of the things to note about the church of Smyrna is that even though these other churches, in fact, out of the seven churches, only two of them did not receive a correction. It was the church of Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia. There is no correction for this church. They aren't rebuked by Christ because they were suffering severely for their faith in him. And there are some times and some places, some circumstances that just to be there, just to hang in, is just the best that you could do. Some of you might be there, where the best that you could do is just to hang in. You're hanging in a tough marriage. You're hanging in a tough work environment. You're hanging in a tough ministry. You're hanging in just a tough Uh, environment or circumstance and part of what jesus might be telling you is hey you know what just just be there and maybe for this church what they needed was not correction but encouragement what they needed was not correction but encouragement now let me ask you a question were they a perfect church no because there is no perfect church but they didn't need to hear the correction right now what they needed to hear was the encouragement And let me say something else. Persecution has a way of sifting out a lot of the junk, a lot of the internal problems. Let's say, for example, that you are not getting along with someone and you are walking down the street and you don't like them and they don't like you. You're kind of frenemies. You know, you're you're kind of friends, but you're kind of enemies and, and you're just having this hard time and you're with them 
and you have something against them, and all of a sudden you realize that you're being surrounded by a mob, an angry mob that want to rob you and want to beat you up. Friend. Okay? The person next to you is now friend. Those disagreements, they just kind of go away. I think a lot of the internal junk that churches go through would just fade if persecution rose up in America. I think that some of the dumb things that, oh, you know, you guys do this or we do this or, and some of the peripheral issues, those things would just, those things would just disappear. And I think for the church in Smyrna, they, they just needed this encouragement to keep on going. Now the motivation of action, it says in verse 10, this is what Jesus tells them to do. He motivates them to do these things and not to do these things. And said in verse 10, this is what he tells them not to do. He says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Remember I said that one kind of trial of faith is feeling like God doesn't know what we're going through. But let me tell you another kind of trial of faith that sometimes in my experience is even more difficult. It's feeling like God um, knows what I'm going through, but he's not changing my circumstance. He knows what I'm going through, but he's not doing anything about it. To the church in Smyrna who are faithful and they were calling upon the Lord and they're being persecuted and they're being dragged out of churches and they're being beaten up and they're calling upon the Lord. One of the most difficult challenges to their faith is probably the same thing that may be happening to people that are going through severe persecution is God, if you see these things, why don't you do something about it? Do you know what I'm facing? How come you don't change my circumstance? Sometimes that's the harder trial. God, you're not doing anything about it. And what Jesus says to them is this, do not fear any of the things which you are about to suffer. Why does Jesus tell us not to fear? Because we're afraid. Okay, because we are afraid. Um, my daughter, Abby, is afraid of bears right now. She, she, she doesn't really like bears <laughs> um, because when she was young, we, we've seen a couple of bears. When we went to Mammoth, we saw a bear, and uh, it came really close to us. We were outside, and, and it kind of freaked her out. And everyone was at this, um, this condominium complex, and, and everyone was running away from the pool. And the bear walked right under our balcony, so he, he was a huge, huge bear. And it climbed this giant tree. And so you think about, you can't get away. I mean, this bear is climbing this tree, and it was just kind of, a, it was fun for us. It was scary for her. So I need to let her know not to be afraid. And when we're in the forest, in fact, we were just at Henry Cowell not too long ago. We were taking a hike and she just starts to get panicked. She's like, dad, are there bears? I'm like, no, honey, there's no bears. You know, don't worry about it. But I don't have to tell her not to be afraid at a petting zoo. Because she's not afraid of sheep. You know, like, hey, don't be afraid, honey. Ah, you know, and I was afraid of sheep as a little kid. I, they freaked me out. No, they don't freak my daughter out. But I tell her not to be afraid when she's afraid. And Jesus knows the fear is real. He doesn't say don't feel afraid. He says don't let fear grip you. Don't let fear dominate you. This morning, I know that you have some fears that you're struggling through. Those are real feelings. Fears about your future. Fears about 
whether or not you're going to be able to make it, fears about whether or not God's going to get you through this trial or whatever it is that you're going through. And Jesus would say to us, do not fear. See, he told them that they would suffer ahead of time. The trial, sometimes, sometimes the greatest trial that we go through as Christians is this. It's the shock of going through a trial. Do you, do you okay, it's kind of like, I'm, I know that Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, right? But then when I go through tribulation, I'm like, oh, I'm going through tribulation. Like, like this is hard. And part of the hard part is just freaking out that I'm going through a hard thing. And sometimes we have this mentality like, I'm, a, I'm following God. I shouldn't be going through this suffering. I, I shouldn't be facing this trial. I, I should be okay because God is a loving and blessing God. And, and, and I'm following him. I'm trying to do the best that I can. And know this, that even in the middle of the trial that Jesus says, do not fear. Peter would remind us not to be surprised by the fiery trials that we're going through. Knowing that our brothers and sisters around the world are suffering persecution. Don't be surprised when it comes. In fact, as a Christian, you're either on your way into a trial, going through a trial, or coming out of a trial. <laughs> that's just like, that's just life. And it's parallel tracks. Trials and blessings, they run parallel. I am absolutely blessed at every single time in my life, at every single moment, I am always blessed above and beyond what I deserve. But I'm always facing some kind of trial at the same time. And Jesus wants them to know not to allow fear to dominate them. According to the organization Open Door, which kind of like is Voice of the Martyrs tracks persecution, as of 2014, 322 Christians are martyred, are killed every single month in our world for their faith. Every 30 days, 322 Christians are killed. Every 30 days, 214 churches are destroyed by persecution. They might be these small churches out in, you know, the middle of a jungle somewhere, but there's persecution that is all around us. And like I shared about the 70 Christians that just tried to worship, not attacking, not doing anything, but just tried to worship um, in their church in Pakistan on Easter Sunday. Jesus tells those in the church in Smyrna that they will be thrown into prison. Now, Smyrna they experienced a sudden wind of change in the political and cultural climate. It was almost like two decades passed, and man, the whole climate was different. The attitude in that city towards Christians was different. The way that Christians were portrayed in movies was different. They didn't have movies, okay? <laughs> I'm just saying, like, we could relate to them, right? Things, the climate changes, Changes pretty rapidly sometimes. And if the climate changes towards Christians pretty rapidly, Jesus says you'll suffer persecution 10 days. Now, different scholars believe different things about this. Some say it means 10 years. Others believe it, it represents 10 different periods of persecution throughout church history. Yet others say it was a literal 10 days. I don't know. But I do know this. Jesus is showing them it will not last forever. Do you know what you're going through? It will not last forever. The persecution, the suffering, it's gonna have an end. I need to encourage myself and encourage you that the things that we go through is not a forever trial. There's an end to it. 
Jesus knows that, and he wants us to remember that. And then do not fear is what they're not to do. What they are to do is this, be faithful. When? How long? Until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The word faithful, think of it this way, be full of faith. Be full of faith in whatever you are facing. It doesn't mean that you're not afraid. It doesn't mean that your trials are not real. It doesn't mean that grief and mourning and suffering are just something that we ignore. But in the middle of that persecution, I I mean, I don't want to go to prison, but there could be a time that I do. I'm not like aiming for that. That's not my goal. You know, it's not like, hey, you know, New Year's resolution, go to prison for my faith. I I don't want to do that. I don't want to die by martyrdom. Don't want to get killed by martyrdom. But I have to realize that there could be a time when I would do something like that. I, you know, I, when I took Deanna to the Philippines and we, there was a, a rally for a cult, a militant cult in the Philippines, and we didn't realize we were going to visit a church. I was going to teach at this church. They had invited me. And after they had invited me, I asked my uncle for a ride to the church, and he said, I wouldn't go. It's not, it's not safe. It's kind of dangerous. But I'd already told them I was going to come. And Deanna was with me and we were out there and we didn't realize on the day that we were coming was the rally and, and 30,000 of these members of this militant cult were in a procession from one city to another city and we got stuck in the middle of their caravan. And so when they had tinted glass, I had Deanna put a cardboard thing up, uh, you know, next to her because I'm okay. You know, they see me and they're like, oh, that guy's okay. But if they would have seen my wife and realized that she's not from there, I didn't know if that would have been dangerous for her. And that was the first time in my life that my heart was really beating and I was praying and saying, God, am I really ready? Am I really ready for this? See, when persecution comes, know this, that maybe, maybe like me, you feel like, hey, I don't know if I'm gonna be bold enough to make a stand. Well, let me encourage you to be bold now and to make a stand now in your current situation and grow in your love and your faith towards God. In your current situation, you're, you're, sometimes I think about like the, the worst possible case, but do I have faith right now in, in my present case? Like not just then, but I need to build faith now. Corey Ten Boom, who many of you know um, from the book and the movie, The Hiding Place, during World War II, her and her family were faithful Christians that hid Jewish friends to save their friends' lives under intense persecution. The Holocaust was underway, and Corey Ten Boom, whose brother was a pastor and her family was faithful Christians, she saw the persecution mounting and she was afraid that she would not have the strength not to deny Christ and to suffer for her faith. So she told her dad, she said, Father, I don't know if I have that kind of faith. Her dad looked at her and he said, Corey, when I send you on a trip or an errand for a business, when do I give you the money for the trip? And she said, right before I leave. And he said to her, yes, and God will give you what you need when you need it. See, if we're faithful right now and we are on that trajectory of trusting the Lord, God's grace will be sufficient in that moment. And I know that it will. I know that it will. I know that if you're facing financial crisis or relationship crisis or health crisis, 
and you're facing something that catches you by surprise, I know that if you continue to call upon the Lord, that his grace will be sufficient in that thing that you did not think that you would ever be able to go through. And what you will be able to find out is that you are able to go through that. How many friends, how many family members do you know that have gone through things and you look at that and you're just shocked that they could withstand that. But God was present and gave them the strength and the grace to help in time of need as they were going through that. I wanna encourage you Christians today, Jesus wants to give you that strength today. And don't worry about the tomorrow. I just need the faith for today, right? And he will meet us right where we are. For Corey Ten Boom, he did give her the faith and the strength that she needed. In a place called Ravensbrook, which is a concentration camp for women, 55,000 women died in that concentration camp that Corey Ten Boom and her sister were at. And her sister died in captivity. And Corey Ten Boom lasted all the way until they were rescued. And the, the United, you know, the allies came and rescued her from that. And she was faithful. And Jesus met her right where she was. In verse 11, he who has an ear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So do I have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches? To the church in Smyrna, you will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 26 says, blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The first death is a physical death when we depart from this world. When a Christian dies, a Christian has no more sense of loss or grief. As Christians, we don't have a sense of nothingness or just soul sleep where we go into non-existence. 2 Corinthians 5.8 reminds us we are confident, yes, well-pleased rather, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But the second death is a spiritual and eternal death and separation from God in judgment. Now, I want to be really sensitive about this. And I don't want to needlessly hurt anyone's feelings, but I also have to be truthful about this in love because as a messenger, I need to deliver this message, which is a part of God's revelation, Jesus's revelation. One preacher said that you should never preach about hell without brokenness of heart and a tear in your eye. And I absolutely agree. Hell is real. And for me, the fact that hell is real I would struggle to believe in a God if hell were not real. And let me explain why. If the men that flew the airplanes or that caused the airplanes to crash into the Twin Towers, if when they died, nothing happened and they thought that they were going into paradise and that was the end, I would really struggle with God's justice. If Adolf Hitler can kill millions of Jews and have them tortured and burned, and at the end of his life, he could end it with a bullet to his head or poison pill, I would really struggle with worshiping a God in which there's no justice. Know this, that the gospel, the good news is that Jesus came to set us free and he's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance that's god's desire that all would come to repentance 
So to the church in Smyrna and to anyone who hears this, I close by acknowledging that suffering is real. Sometimes life is very difficult. For any of you dealing with the death of a loved one, either in the current past or in the far past, there's no words to explain sometimes the pain and the sense of loss that death can bring. But for those who are facing death and suffering, for those that are going through these things, Jesus wants to remind them that there's something worse than death. And that's to not put that faith and trust in Christ. That's how we overcome, to him who overcomes. 1 John 5, 4 says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We've overcome by the the faithfulness of the blood of Christ and our hope and trust in that. Now, after Polycarp's death, remember he overcame. And after he overcame, because of that faith, there was a revival that happened in Smyrna. This morning, know this. In your suffering, it could be one of the greatest witnesses to your loved ones that don't know Christ. I don't want to go through it. I know you don't want to go through it. But may God give us the grace to go through the things that we suffer for. And may God give us the love to realize that people are suffering all around us. We become his hands and feet and agents of God on mission with him when we help ease that suffering. And when we're going through that suffering, to trust him, to know that he's faithful. And he says to you and to me this morning, I know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we declare to you this morning in faith that you are a good father. And right now, Jesus, I want to pray for anyone here that maybe for them the biggest trial is that they've never come to the place of repenting, just turning around and surrendering to you. There may be someone here that has never come to that place of trusting Jesus. And this morning, just know that the Holy Spirit works by giving us this uh, testimony in our hearts. This, he bears witness that what you heard is true, that Jesus is real and that he really does care. And if that is you, would you pray this prayer of faith with me? And Jesus, please come into my life. Lord, I'm fearful, but I want to surrender to you. Jesus, forgive me for going my own way, my sin, for at times even going against what my conscience would say. And I pray that you would comfort me with your presence. Fill me with your spirit. Lord, not only for us this morning, but for the persecuted church, we come before you and as we sing, we call upon you. You are the God of mercy. You're the God of grace. Jesus, would you bring the grace to help in time of need? Would you fill us this morning with your spirit? Would you just in our hearts bear testimony that you see and that you know? That you would motivate us by your love, number one, to not be motivated by fear, and number two, to be faithful. Lord, you haven't said be successful 
You told us to be faithful. And Lord, I know that sometimes the trials that we go through is when we see the very things that we wanted to happen crumble. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to trust you, to know that you love us, to know that maybe trials are ahead. But Jesus, you said you would never leave us or forsake us. Draw near to us today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.